Hey, everybody, it's Cam Brower. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask you to please hit those like buttons and also leave a comment. You do that, and it makes it so much easier for others to find me. Tonight, Dr. Michael Masters joins me. His book cautiously examines the premise that extraterrestrials may instead be our distant human descendants using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us in their own evolutionary past. Are aliens really us in the future? We're going to talk about that tonight on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My Alien Life Podcast. Hey, welcome to the weekend of My Alien Life. This is Cameron Brower. Thanks for listening. Last week, I talked to a researcher who told me how the Great Pyramid was built, and Wednesday night, my guest was an alien. Tonight, I'm honored and couldn't be more excited to be speaking with an anthropologist and the author of Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. Dr. Michael Masters, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. I have to say I'm absolutely out of my mind happy to have you here. I started out in anthropology. That's my degree. I did do a little bit of graduate school, but I was I was married at the time, uh, working for the Forest Service as an archaeologist and still couldn't afford to have my wife and I in graduate school. So mm-hmm. I opted to enter the brutal Missoula, Montana workforce because I guess my dream had always been to fail miserably. <laughs> so... Where? We all we all fail at archaeology, <laughs> I think, in one way or another. It's a beautiful discipline, though. It is. It is. It's a lot of fun. So where and why and when did you decide to become an anthropologist? Uh, it was my junior year of undergraduate. I went to school at what's often referred to as the University of Montana of Ohio. <laughs> it's a similar culture, similar vibe down in Southern Ohio, what's known as Ohio University. And I was a physics major, physics and astronomy for the first couple years, and then decided I'd like to pursue the human evolution side of this question of uh, extraterrestrials and UFOs. So I switched over to anthropology right right around the beginning of my junior year, I think it was. Nice. So... I've been waiting like 25 years for this moment. I love anthropology. Before we talk about your book and look at your research, can I ask you some university anthropology test questions? Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> so here, here's your category. 
um, Anthropology 201, Anthropology 311, and Anthropology 331. These are actual questions from the University of Calgary, who has an, they have an excellent anthropology department. And whoever put together Anthropology 201 was a beast because... Is that biological anthropology? Uh, it's, it's, I think it's like an intro to, to maybe biological anthropology. It's, yeah. it's incredibly tough. So um, what's, your, what's, what's your pleasure, 201, 311, or 311 or 331? I taught three sections of 201 at the same time. There were three of five classes I was teaching. Um, so that's, that's definitely my favorite, the intro that's, to biological anthropology. All right. This one, I'll ask you... Uh, this one first. This is this is sort of related, but um, um, I don't know why they they put this in the action. And this is a question in this actual class. But uh, what is a plesiodapiform, and what is their significance? Plesiodapiform. Plesio sounds like it's uh, some sort of number. Plesiodap. It also sounds like uh, I've also heard it pronounced plesiodapiforme. Sometimes an e is in it, and it's. I'm going to give you a, a hint. It has to do with mammals. Hmm. It's not. That's not a very good hint. No, that's pretty general. You could. <laughs> I didn't mean to stump you on that, but it's a group of primate-like mammals who lived in the Paleocene. It's actually one of the first mammals in the in the. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Okay. In the yeah, record. No, yeah. Kind of a. Um, Right, yeah. Um, sort of the, the common ancestor of most, if not all, primates, I believe. Exactly. Is that, uh, yeah, no, I, I skipped over. Um, and that's all I know primate, about it. Primate paleobiology in grad school. I went the hominin paleobiology route. But I do remember learning about the, the various early primates, now that you mention it. And I got to say that, you know, a lot of people really, when they think about anthropology, I actually applied for a job once out of, out of college and, uh, the, the manager of this company that I applied for thought I made the word anthropology up. I mean, <laughs> he, serious? yeah, he accused uh, me of making up my own degree and, <laughs> and, uh, I, I just left. I mean, where yeah, do you even go with that? I, I mean, know. you know, good day, he, good day sir. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, he hadn't heard of the word or he had heard archaeology, but he didn't know what archaeology was. No, I tried most, to explain that. Yeah, most people think it's digging up dinosaurs. And right, right, right. It's very, very funny. Yeah, I think most undergraduates have that same experience. Going to a career fair is just uh, suicide on your self-esteem <laughs> with an anthropology <laughs> degree. Like, so what are you going to do with that? Well, right, right. Grow up and write a book about aliens, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I've been there a few times. Yeah. So here's it's the next question. Uh, what, what is the obstetrical, obstetrical dilemma? Oh, I got that one on lock. Uh, I actually wrote about that in my book quite a bit. The obstetric dilemma is the idea that we have a trade-off between the size and shape of our birth canal and our bipedal form of locomotion in which we suffer from what more colloquially we call the big head, small hole problem where we can't get through the birth canal because we have these big giant heads and that is limited by bipedalism, which in more recent studies has been shown to not necessarily be the case that we may have gotten that wrong, or at least it's not as important as uh, it was previously thought to have been. What is polyspecific association? Hmm. 
I can't say I've heard of that either, to be honest. Could, could be Canadian. I don't know. University of Calgary. It's uh, the association. It could be another primate thing, too. Association between two or more different species that involves behavior changes by at least one of the species. And the other so, one was uh, so what? Like behavioral coevolution? Sure, I guess so. Um, yeah. what, is the, what is the universal sexual asymmetry? Mm. These are tough questions. These, I mean, are. These, these are, this is the universal tendency of women. Well, this is, you know, of it is something else. I'm sure the university universal tendency of women to be in a subordinate position in their social relationship with men. So mm. yeah. Is yeah. 311 a cultural anthropology? Class that was, that was 331. Yeah, it is. Oh, it actually is. And, and, um, that was that, that cultural anthropology I always found tough. Um, linguistics was the other. And yeah. Ling, no. Linguistics was a killer. Um, mm -hmm. I, we had to have a, a, a language in uh, the University of Montana and three quarters of language. And I almost took linguistics because I didn't want to take Spanish, but linguistics was wow. Yeah, I, I took a French for business class early in my undergraduate career. And I hadn't been to France yet and didn't speak it very well. And I didn't know jack all about business. And it was a very, very difficult time to say the least. But it's also good. It's really good that universities make people get some cross-cultural linguistic knowledge because most people in other parts of the world have it. And I think we're lacking in that regard a little bit. Tell me about your book, please. What inspired you to actually write a book like this while you're a professor of anthropology? Well, it's a question I've wondered about ever since I was very young. Uh, eight years old, in fact, I remember remember it very vividly, having this sort of uh, sort of mind, this mental image of uh, what we in anthropology know as an early hominin form, something somewhat akin to a chimpanzee, our modern form, and then this archetypal, big-headed, small-faced, large-eyed alien form, and I just got the sense that there was some sort of connection there and set out to try to investigate that in as much detail as possible, bringing together multiple different scientific disciplines and uh, offering up a very conservative, restrained approach to not just the UFO phenomenon in general, but specifically applying scientific methods. Because there has been a tendency among some ufologists to to overuse the term science when it's not really applicable and when the scientific method isn't being followed. So I saw that there's there's it's still an unanswered question. There's a lot of uncertainty about this phenomenon. And I feel that offering a testable hypothesis that's rooted in a scientific approach and is multidisciplinary that there was demand. People wanted uh, wanted a new approach. They wanted something more tangible rather than just speculation about this or that. And um, it's we all love to speculate. It's fun to do. But I don't think there's necessarily, when you're trying to get at the root of a, a big question like this, I don't think it's necessarily the place for it. So I was trying to fill a, a gap in the literature, I guess you could say, and put something out there that is a little more rooted in logic and is uh, scientifically fastidious and, and that 
message. Hopefully will appeal to people that are looking for that. I know a lot of people have jumped on this and you've had a lot of opportunities to um, talk about the book. Um, what, what's that been like? What's, what's the, uh, what's, what's the reception been like? Oh, it's been a ton of fun. Um, <clears throat> I've always sort of enjoyed conversations that aren't just your standard, Oh, Hey, how's the weather? What are the kids doing? And, and this has provided ample opportunities for that. And it's been really fun. Um, lots of different formats, um, like speaking engagements, interviews like this one. Uh, I did a book reading last week in an old castle, uh, which was a very informal event. They actually had to kick people out at the end of the night because we're all just drinking wine and talking about time travel. And it was, right. it, was, it was a lot of fun. So it's a very, just talking to so many different people in so many different capacities. I, I got an email from one of the head engineers at SpaceX the other day asking me about the book and it's just you never know I, I get to work in the morning and I just never know what I'm going to find or who I'm going to find in my inbox and I've, I've really been enjoying that I think you'll find that well I know you've already found that there's a lot of people out there who have a deep deep passion for for UFOs and UFO related phenomenon why is it unlikely that the UFO phenomenon can be explained in the context of interstellar space travel well, I lay out a number of lines of reasoning in the book that mostly center on the uniqueness of our planet, our evolutionary history, our bipedal form of locomotion, and just how rare that is among mammals and how unlikely it is to evolve in the same way and at the same time on a different planet somewhere else in the universe. And, and that time aspect I feel is important and oftentimes overlooked because the universe is huge, our galaxy is huge, the distance between solar systems is immense, and the difficulties inherent in trying to travel between and among stars presents a lot of limitations unto itself. But even beyond that, it's extremely unlikely that we would evolve such similar characteristics at the same time on any planet that is within reach of us or if we are in reach of them. And, and also the, the, the time aspect traveling between them. Another thing that people don't often consider is that with regard to special relativity, if you're traveling at a high rate of speed relative to the speed of light, it it compresses time and space relative to those who are in a, a reference frame that's at rest. So in traveling at high speed, even for a hundred years to get to whatever planet we may be capable of reaching that might have life, that hundred years to you would be something akin to 10,000 or 15,000 on earth. And I just, I, it doesn't seem logical that anyone would engage in a mission that required them to disassociate themselves with their family, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and their entire civilization. Because once they return, if they ever returned at all, it would be a fundamentally different place. And, and so that, those are just a few of the many reasons I highlight in the book why this idea of extraterrestrial visitation, terror, earth, meaning outside of earth, is uh, is highly unlikely, and especially when considered in the context of modern reports and 
historic past reports of close encounters, which almost ubiquitously describe upright walking bipedal hominins in the exact same way that we are. And even beyond that, with traits that we would expect to see uh, if we continue the same long evolutionary patterns of change that characterize our own hominin evolutionary history. So it's not necessarily just pitting one against the other extra tempestrial versus extraterrestrial, but there are a number of aspects of the extraterrestrial hypothesis that really don't lend themselves well to scientific hypotheses, scientific investigation, and they just generally don't make sense with regard to this specific phenomenon. How do you think you over, or if you were to travel back in time and if we're being visited by travelers in our future, how do they overcome the grandfather paradox? Yeah, I talk about that quite a bit in the book, twice. Um, in fact, once in the context of time and backward time travel, and then again toward the end of the book in the context of just what would happen. What are the implications of traveling into the past, visiting yourself in the past or past periods of time that humans characterize? And the main thing to keep in mind about the grandfather paradox is it's something like many things related to time and especially time travel. It's one of these things that gets presented in all kinds of different ways, very confusing, confused ways even, where it's presented as something more confusing than it is. In a lot of TV shows and movies, which gives people a false impression that there is something paradoxical here. And in fact, most of the research in modern physics and in quantum mechanics has shown that there really is no paradox, that that self-consistency is maintained across the whole of block time. And when we have this idea of a, a butterfly effect or a grandfather paradox, it's because we're used to thinking of time as linear. But physicists don't. They see time as this giant block, this omnipresent, all of the matter in the universe existing all at the same time. So when you're moving through it, whether you're a part of the past or the future or wherever you are, jumping in and out of these different slices of block time, everything that you do or did is already a part of that. It's And going to the past, anything you did in that past is already registered as part of your future. It's non-disruptive. It's already a part of your future before you even go back into the past to do it as seen from your own personal point of view. So, so really, once you start to look at time in the way that physicists do as, as landscape time or block time, a lot of these perceived paradoxes largely centering on our, our linear view of time uh, really really kind of fade away. They're, they're, not as, they're not as problematic as most people consider them to be. That's amazing. So if you, if you think we're actively being observed, why aren't, we, why aren't we being observed in a way where these visitors are actual participants in, in whatever we're doing? Well, I think... And this this is speculation now. I'll preface sure. this with I'm, I'm speculating. But I, I think that could happen, possibly even within our lifetimes. When I discussed this with people, it came up in my class um, fall semester, last semester. And, and someone was like, you know, this all makes a lot of sense. It's just too bad that we'll all be dead long before we ever get to the point where this is tested. Or, you know, we, we become them traveling back through time. And I... <laughs> 
I told them, no, that's not necessarily the case. We could learn of this and start interacting across time in the same way that we do across geographic space at whatever point in the future they decided we were ready to know. Um, so it could be, I mean, it wasn't really that long ago that the H.G. Wells, Orson Wells reading inspired chaos within our society. So in looking at at that in the context of long periods of time going into the future, that short period of time between whenever that broadcast was, I think the 50s and today, would seem like a blink of an eye. So, so maybe we just don't seem ready yet for some sort of cross-temporal disclosure. It could also be a disease transmission. There could be some, some problems associated with transmission of diseases across temporal lines in the same way that it was with Native Americans and smallpox and influenza and rhinovirus and others, where we just don't, we, we clearly have the ancestors of these diseases, but they've evolved to the point that they would be much more virulent if accidentally reintroduced to the past. So, and there could be a, there could be a tourism component of it too. There could be to some extent, the, the UFOs you see kind of hovering above clouds or above pyramids or major events or places could be some aspect of, of time tourism that, that Stephen Hawking was always talking about when he was writing about these things. So it could be any number of things, um, but I do I do feel like there's the potential, and I, I certainly would love to see some sort of cross-temporal interaction in the future, if it is possible, and if... Uh, they they work out some of these problems that may need to be worked out on their end because we're clearly powerless in the whole equation. I think that's right, and and um, I think we're so narrowly focused. Sometimes we we have a hard time seeing the big picture. What about? Let me ask you this: in the last one hundred years or so, it's tough to see things evolve in such a short period of time, but. To me, it would seem that we're advanced enough right now where instead of evolving, instead of um, instead of natural selection, um, we would have a mechanism in our culture that we could change our environment. We could make our environment different, so we wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to be naturally selected for or against. Um, what happened in the future? I mean, what changed? Something big had to have changed in order to for these for these humans to evolve and become so different than we are well i think you could also ask what happened in the past because we started doing that with the origins of agriculture that's really when we went from being a product of our environment and working in the context of those selective pressures that all other organisms are subject to to making the environment suit our needs and it was a really important change that set in motion a number of things such as um, self-domestication being one of the biggest. We started to have selection for pro-social behaviors, which is a product of our environment changing to, in response to something we did. And in anthropology, we use the term biocultural evolution because you can't separate those things with organisms as complex as humans and with so many instances of culture shaping our biological form and vice versa. The, the advent of, of stone tools, fire, uh, being able to 
cut our meat, being able to cook our meat, relax selective pressures for large dentition and large masticatory musculature, our chewing muscles, which allowed our brains to get bigger and, and take over more of the skull. So it really ever since we invented tools, since we really acquired culture on a, a broad scale, it has been changing us and it has been creating these, these morphological shifts. And it, those really are, are likely to persist. Um, I, I try not to speculate about what might happen between now and then to cause us to look a certain way or, or, or to do things that, that might make us look like these aliens. Rather, I just focus on these really long-term, enduring biocultural changes that, if continued into the future, would already give us these alien-like traits. And, and, and that's important, too, because it takes out of the equation whatever might happen between now and then. Because even, even when populations were small and you had genetic drift affecting us, we were moving into different environments once we left Africa two million years ago as Homo erectus. We're subjecting ourselves to all of these different environmental, climatic, predator-prey, social-sexual relationships and environments. But even in spite of all of those changes, we still have the same dominant trend of encephalization and reduced facial projection. We still have our brains growing bigger and our faces getting smaller. Our eyes, because of pleiotropic gene relationships between the brain and eye, meaning the same gene controls the development of both of these organs, and it makes sense giving fetal ontogeny and how the, the eye develops out of the forebrain. So looking at the continuation of these same long-term trends, even without having to speculate about what might happen in the near future or the distant future, you could still see how, if those persist, we would come to look like these big-headed, small-faced, large, large-eyed aliens. If you think about the future, you'd have to assume that technology has be, would or has become in the future something that we could possibly never even imagine right now. But thinking about that, what, what physical aspects of UFOs would seem to suggest that they have the ability to warp space-time? The, yeah, you're right. We, we definitely can't really conceptualize what material science and engineering must go into this. What, what I try to do in the book is lay out a foundation for understanding time and, and backward time travel that, that really arose with Einstein's 1915 paper on general relativity. And since then, there's been a number of solutions to his field equations that demonstrate that backward time travel is not only possible, but offer up some ways in which it may occur. And the main thing that has to happen is that our, our light cones, as they're known, all of the events that can happen within the restrictions of light and the, the laws of physics, our future light cones have to be reoriented toward the past in order to travel back into the past. And one common theme since Godel and Van Stockham and Tipler has always been the rotation of a large, massive or highly energetic body. And in looking at, at these at these IFOs and, and the characteristics that they have, they're very well suited for rotation. 
and and in fact that could be an aspect of them maintaining stability in flight throw in a frisbee you need it to spin in order to have any sort of stability but even beyond that uh, more recent studies coming out of italy have looked at frame dragging what's known as the lens thurring effect and this is the primary way in which you can reorient those light cones sideways and, and downward in order to travel into the past and Again, it, it still involves mass. It still involves rotation. Um, more recent studies looking at copper spheres all sort of follow the same pattern. So, yeah, we can't know yet. There's no way that, that I or anybody else can know how exactly this is done or we'd be doing it already. But there is a common theme ever since Einstein's 1915 paper of a rotating massive energetic entity. And in, in these reports of, of, of IFOs, other than the triangular ones, but those would still be well suited to rapid rotation as well. You do have the saucer shape or disc shaped craft. So um, I, I do the best I can to highlight current knowledge in physics with regard to what we know now, what we can know about the mechanisms that may be involved. And I feel like one of the best ways to do that is just highlight, highlighting the last hundred plus years of research in this field and, and that consistency that's shown. They consistently show this rotational aspect to it. And um, I, form follows function is what we always say. The form of this thing would seem to indicate that it has the function of creating frame dragging and reorienting light cones toward the past. Awesome. I want to talk again about bipedalism and um, so we can get an understanding of how significant that is. And uh, so let me just throw this at you. If you had two identical planets, two Earths, and um, all things being equal, can you explain why bipedal humans would almost be statistically improbable on the two different planets? Well, it... There's a couple reasons. If they are the exact same, meaning that they have the same climate and the same gravity, most importantly, you could potentially have bipedal organisms. Uh, we did it here. We suffer from what Bruce Latimer, the former director at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, used to call the perils of being bipedal. We suffer from problems like back pain and neck pain and blown out knees, hip problems, and hemorrhoids, and the obstetric stilemma like we talked about earlier, the difficult birth. All of these things are problematic because we stood upright and started walking on two legs. And we are the only ones that do it. Of the 200-plus species of primate, we are the only one that is habitually bipedal. And the the trade-offs there, what we refer to as evolutionary trade-offs in evolutionary biology, where there are negatives associated with a positive change. And it's a misconception a lot of people have about evolution. They think that things are just always getting bigger or better, but that's not the case at all. And in looking at humans, you can identify so many of these evolutionary trade-offs. Um, choking is one of them. As we rotated our heads downward after standing upright, we put this crimp in our esophagus and our trachea that, that sets us up for choking. Um, a, a number of other problems like that TMJ vision problems. So, so these trade-offs clearly did not weigh the benefits. And one of the biggest benefits 
is that it allowed for our brains to grow bigger and allowed us to be able to sit here and talk about these things and all of the problems that we have that resulted from our, our bipedalism. The problem is, and what I mostly discuss in the book, is that most of the Earth-like exoplanets that have been found to date as part of the Kepler mission are much larger than Earth. They're, they're more massive, which would mean that all of the problems we suffer here on Earth associated with our bipedal form of locomotion would be far worse on another planet with gravity higher than 9.8 meters per second squared. So if, if we were finding smaller Earths or Earths that are the exact same, same size or, or mass or density as our own, it is possible that could happen. Again, all of the things that went into making us exactly what we are and exactly how we look aren't likely to occur somewhere else and at the same time, regardless of what the gravity of that planet is like and whether or not uh, bipedalism could arise. So again, it just comes down to probabilities and it's, it's highly improbable that you get the same thing twice at the same time on two different planets, even d temporarily dismissing all of the problems associated with traveling between those planets through distant space, as we had talked about earlier. So we talked about bipedalism. We talk about facial characteristics. What other physical and cultural characteristics of what we call aliens would seem to suggest that they are our descendants here on Earth? Well, they can speak our languages, most importantly. It would be, again, very difficult to learn the language of beings on a separate planet without having access to historic records that can teach you what those languages are or archived reports. Um, the Rosetta Stone was instrumental in this regard. We wouldn't be able to decipher hieroglyphics if it wasn't for the Rosetta Stone. So that is a, a characteristic that would seem to indicate um, cross-temporal cultural evolution or the, the continued uh, progression of our languages, they're certainly going to be very, very different, but still having records or even prehistoric records that can allow you to decipher past languages would be instrumental. The, the, the common reports of uh, an alien abductions of biomedical examinations taking place, that's another one that seems to indicate future human activity because as a paleoanthropologist, the things that are described in these reports are almost identical to what I would do as a paleoanthropologist if I also had access to time travel technology. I would be picking them up and collecting hair samples and skin samples, and semen samples and fecal samples. It's what's something that's very useful to us as anthropologists is poop, both in the context of primatology and even in paleoanthropology, we found uh, what we refer to as coprolites of Neanderthals, and we were able to piece together parts of their diet and realize that they eat upwards of 7,000 calories or had eaten 7,000 calories per day, mostly meat, as it turns out. So, so having that knowledge from having living tissues is huge. And, and the best way to get that is through this sort of biomedical examination. We're left with fossilized remnants of teeth and skeletal material. But if we could just pick them up, study them, uh, even culturally speaking, we could learn so much more about culture rather than finding the material remains 
in an archaeological context, we could actually observe, we could engage in almost ethnographic research in a way, an edict uh, method of inquiry. So there's there's a lot of things that that if you if you can take these reports seriously, and certainly not all of them are true, but the consistency across these reports and and the the status of people too, like we're talking about doctors and and lawyers and police officers and military who share these details of their experience and the consistency across them does seem to indicate that this is real, that this is happening. And if we can get past that stigma of talking about it and and listen and, and look at these in the context of averages, I think it, it really not only points to being time travelers from our future, but we could potentially learn something about that future, about what we will be like um, in that future, just simply as a result of paying attention now. So in a sense, we are studying our past by looking at the fossil record, and at the same time, they're studying us as we become the fossil record. Right, yeah. I mean, and, and it's not to say that this is entirely an anthropological pursuit. I do think that those instances of abductions that involve biomedical examinations is most likely future pathologists or anthropologists or physicians based on what they do and based on how much they could learn. And you're right, what we could learn in doing those things as well. So that that cultural consistency, I guess you could say, where what we do to study other animals and even other humans when we have a living, breathing individual is very similar to what you consistently hear in these reports. Have you uh, interviewed experiencers? I'm sure you have. How many? I I have been interviewed by experiencers, and they have shared with me their their accounts. Right. Um, I haven't. <clears throat> that wasn't the primary focus of the book, and I, I talk about accounts, um, well-known ones, ones that have been vetted. And um, I, I try to bring those in where I feel it's relevant, but not not to really base the book around that. I think, like I just mentioned, that we need to talk about these things. And it's important that we can. And we're robbing ourselves of knowledge and experience and not talking about them. So I, I've been approached by many people. I haven't sat down to interview individuals in particular, but I've been approached by and have had countless individuals writing me over the last few weeks telling me their stories. So I, I do feel that I've gotten more interpersonal knowledge than I had before writing this book. But to answer your question, no, I haven't sat down and, and really tried to, to draw out of people what their specific experience was. How do you think we keep ufology a scientific <coughs> study and avoid speculation and unfounded claims? Um, I, I think it's going to take people, people wanting that, people requiring that, people to call BS on things that can't be backed up. Um, there's a lot of people making money and a lot of institutions and organizations making money by just saying whatever they want. Um, I saw something come out today about how ufology is basically a religion. It's about belief. 
And, and I think that's long been a criticism of it and it's valid, honestly, in many ways, this study to date has been a belief system. We don't have proof that there's these beings visiting, whether they're from time or space, um, the idea that there must be something out there and they're coming from the heavens. That's not a testable hypothesis. There's no way to really refute that or falsify it as we say. So I think if, if people are just saying whatever they want in this field, it's important to step back and say, wait, what are they saying? And, and it can be entertaining. A lot of this is just about entertainment. There's many different shows on right now where it's clearly about the entertainment factor. However, they blur the lines between science and belief. And I feel that that's very dangerous. And it's something that's been going on writ large in our society, even beyond the study of this phenomenon where people are just okay believing what they believe. And, and that's fine. If, if it's going to be a belief system, if it's going to be some religion, then there's really no reason to try to counter that because it's not in the realm of science. But if people do want an explanation for things that is more valid and they start demanding that at these UFO conferences and on ancient aliens and other places, then I think we could really see an important sea change, not just within this community, but within our broader society where you start to have more scientists taking it seriously because it's, it's a serious thing now. It's not just about wild speculation and speculocatenation and all of these other unfounded claims. It's, it's actually people trying to come together and investigate whether there is a phenomenon and if so, what can we do to understand it in real terms. So I, I think it's going to take people, um, the, the consumers of this knowledge asking for something more for it to really start to move in that direction. In my opinion, I think it really would take a multidisciplinary approach to study this in its fullness. So mm -hmm. why is science and the scientific investigation in this phenomenon both welcomed and dismissed? I mean, why, why do you lean one way or the other? And why haven't groups gotten together and, and, and tried to do a multidisciplinary approach to, to figuring this out? It's, it's really interesting. It's not something I necessarily expected in publishing this book and, and starting to talk to people about it more widely. I didn't realize there was such a rift between the belief side, the religion side, and the science side, or the people who are really trying to understand this phenomenon at whatever cost, at whatever cost of their preconceived notions of what it is, or who they are, where they're coming from, or when they're coming from. So I think that's it'll still probably be around for a while. It, it's probably not likely to change, but, but I do think in order to have collaboration across scientific disciplines, we are going to have to have a change in the perception, not just of the phenomenon, but of the people studying it. And if more of those people demanding the scientific side of things start to make their voices heard, louder than the ones who are just claiming that 
dragons are coming from a hollow moon and they're really the reason for the phenomenon. Because those people are, are loud and there's quite a number of them. There's, it still blows my mind that there's people that still think the earth is flat. And, <laughs> and I yeah. hear from them all the time. It's, I'm sure. It's what I mean, they're loud. They, they really want everybody to know what they think, even though they're very, very wrong. And it's very easy to test that. Um, so I think the more we can bring a scientific persona to it, which will have to be rooted in actual scientific studies, I think more people will start to come out. But there's, from my own personal experience over the last few weeks, I've been in touch with PhDs in different universities who would be awesome to collaborate on on this. Um, we talked about studies of consciousness and this telepathy aspect of it that's so widely reported in these instances of, of UFO abductions. And unfortunately, they're not at a point in their career where they can really do this openly. Um, there was even one I was chatting with in a, a Twitter thread not too long ago who said, I'm already losing friends, my academic colleagues, for being a part of this chat. And the other person I'd been talking to just in the last couple of weeks was saying, you know, I really look forward to when I have a tenure track position and I have tenure and I'm being promoted to where I can start to look at this. But there's fear. There's fear in the academic community, even people that are supposed to be doing this. This is science. This is what science is. It's pushing our understanding forward using a scientific approach. But there's just such backlash and such instant disregard among academics that they won't even allow us to do what we're supposed to be doing, them included. They're doing science a disservice. They're doing themselves and our society a disservice by not even opening their minds enough to think, oh, wait, maybe I should challenge my, my preconceived notions and my biases of this thing because there might be a way to do it right and there might be a way to do it the way that we're investigating all of these other things that we investigate on a daily basis. So there's, there's a lot of roadblocks in place. Many of them have been constructed intentionally as part of Project Sign, Grudge, Blue Book, and others. And it was scientists being pitted against those that wanted answers. They, their job was to gaslight these people, to ridicule them, to tell them, no, you didn't see that. It was something else. And that created a divide that I think still exists today. It's persisted over the last 60, 70 years, largely as a result of these programs. And then this self-fulfilling prophecy, this cultural continuity where it just gets recapitulated uh, from generation to generation. Oh no, UFOs are crazy. We don't talk about that. And it just keeps getting passed down when it, it's not the way it should be. It's not how science and knowledge progresses in any way whatsoever. So do you think there's a, an effort of organized disinformation out there? Hmm. I, I mean, you know, you know what I mean specifically. Yeah, I, I do. Mean, is, is, I the, do. Is, the, is the, you know, I, I actually feel that there's some voices out there that um, sound very credible, but I don't believe them just because I think they know a little too much. And uh, I don't think that right. they've really been there. So I'm just wondering if, if, disinformation is is part of the plan to to um for for whatever reason i don't know what do you think well i i honestly i i, I can't know but to start with so i'm just speculating here but i do 
There's been claims about uh, what's his name, Luis Elizondo. Did I get that right? From uh, the To the Stars Academy, he had been working for that AA Tip program and came out talking about it, the secret program that the Defense Department had. Um, and and recently, he's been attacked by people for being one of those, for being the disseminator disseminator of disinformation. And I don't know, I mean, it wouldn't be much different than what has already been acknowledged happening in the past. And that's not conspiracy theory to say that. There's been thousands of documents released that have shown that the stated mission of Project Grudge was to discredit people and to try to get people to not talk about this thing. And Project Sign did a lot of that too. Jalen Hynek was instrumental in that. So really, if that was happening today, and there's so many outlets for information, we consume mass amounts of information every day through tons of different media sources. So if there were individuals who were still tasked with doing that, it would be pretty easy for them to find the right avenues with which to do it. To say that that's happening, I I don't know. I can't know. But I could definitely see how if there was still a desire to quell interest in this and to maintain that stigma that surrounds it, that would be a good method for doing it. Could you even guess how far in the future we would have to be talking for technology to be able to uh, be so advanced we could go back in time? I mean, are we talking... Are we talking a uh, hundred thousand years, a million years? What would that look like? Where would we even start? Any idea there? I don't. I don't think it would be that far. Um, and and based on most of the reported characteristics of these individuals, they're they're not that different from us. You do have the reports of the insect-like or alien or reptile-like forms who could very well be just a, a super distant point in the future. Um, at which time they would have had far longer for these still derived characteristics of our hominid lineage to have changed even farther. So we're less, they're less identifiable to us as humans. Um, in the same way that, you know, we went back and got Homo erectus, we would look very different to them, but not nearly as much as if we went back to the Australopithecines or Aurorantugonensis in the Miocene we would look very, very different to them just as a result of our, our temporal ancestry, as I like to call it in the book. Um, so with regard to the question of the technology, though, I, I don't think that we're that far off. It, it, it was only, it wasn't that long ago that we even started flying uh, the Wright brothers or when we went to the moon. And and the time between the first flight and our moon voyage wasn't really that long either. So I do feel like there's an acceleration, and there very clearly is. That's not just my feeling. An acceleration in the rate of technological advancement, both in our understanding of physics, astronomy, material science, engineering. All of these are going to have to be important to get to the point where we can construct a device that's capable of doing that. So I I don't think it's really that far out. And, and you do have a lot of these reports of very Norwegian-looking individuals, uh, Chinese characteristics is one that gets mentioned a lot. And, and the, oftentimes they're referred to as very human or humanoid. 
So we, we recognize their humanness, but still have conceptualized them as being from a different planet, which is strange to me. But if you do have the ability to do this in the near future, it could help explain why you have these blonde hair, blue eyes. They still have hair, for one. Um, slightly larger eyes, slightly larger head. Uh, very East Asian traits in some. But then much farther into the future could help explain some of the the reptilian or insect-like trait. So I, I don't know. It, it could be soon. It could be later. I, I would generally say somewhere between 10 years and 10,000 years. I think you're right. I think 100 years is just, you know, the technology that we've come up with in 100 years is just a blink in time. I mean, oh, it's yeah. really, really geologically speaking, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Do you think Do you think that there could be multiple subspecies in the future? Um, because people are seeing different things. So I'm wondering if we are seeing different types of, of, of us in the future coming back to visit us. That's an interesting question. I, I think it would take a, a speciation event um, well, not a clear speciation event because you said subspecies, but even to get that differentiation, we're still going to have to have a disassociation of the human population. And thus far, the trend has very clearly been toward amalgamation and homogenization of our gene pool, uh, especially following colonialism. Again, around 500 years ago, we are becoming one large interbreeding population on this planet. So to get that, it, it would require some sort of division, whether it be uh, moving to an outpost on the moon or Mars. Even then, we could still have gene flow between those groups. So I think it would really take something major and far away for us to start to develop those same subspecies characteristics that uh, really, you don't you don't think maybe even a you don't think a, a geologic isolation that would um, I mean right now we have different parts of the planet with very very different climates um, you know if if we are pushed to the extreme poles or or something like that geologically if we're isolated maybe um, there radiation and some of us had to go underground I don't know that yeah. I, well, it all comes down to interbreeding. It, it all comes down to whether you could flow genes between those populations. And if we were just on opposite ends of the pole and there was some major event that drove us to that, I think we would still possess simple technology that would allow us to move between those populations and, and make babies with each other still. But the underground thing, yeah, if, if there's some sort of nuclear holocaust, but even then, it's going to be somewhat temporary in the context of geologic time and long-term evolutionary changes. You, you may start to see some differentiation, but if once the radiation subsided and we came out, if we did start to interbreed again, those would disappear relatively quickly. So I, I don't know. It, it's interesting to think about, and especially with space exploration, uh, just wrapped up season two of the show, The Expanse. And that's one thing that they highlight on that show a lot is, is the slight differences that the Mars population developed versus the ones in the asteroid belt versus Earth. And in a sense, you could maybe consider those early stages of a subspecies differentiation. Of course, that's fiction. It's not 
accurate, but it does sort of give you a sense of what it might take and what sort of separation might need to exist for that to happen. So can you make an assumption that, um, wow, the future may not look so bad if these visitors aren't proactively trying to change the past? Well, if, if they are us in the future, I think their existence as such is pretty encouraging. It means that we will exist. What happens between now and then, uh, who, who knows? Um, and, and there are those reports where uh, people re- report them saying, you know, things about nuclear holocaust and climate change and stuff like that. So, and again, that's sort of a testament to this extratempestral hypothesis, too, is why would they care if they were from a different planet? If they're stakeholders in their own past, us being the ones that help shape their climate in the future and pollution and things like that. So, yeah, it would it might help explain some of those things. Those aren't entirely common. Most of these interactions are relatively benign and they don't try to impart knowledge from the future per se, but, um, yeah, it, it, it would make sense why they might want to do it if, if they are doing that at all. Anthropology has a long history of disputing results from cutting edge researchers who become popular. Is this something that you're concerned about? Well, so far, they're all just ignoring me to the best of their ability. (laughs) (laughs) It's been kind of fun to see, actually. Um, Certain members of the UFO community have, too. Um, There's ones who are really, really tied to the extraterrestrial hypothesis who are attempting to not have to acknowledge this research. And and that, that exists in science, too. Just like you mentioned, there's always those dogmatic researchers who spent their whole life studying something sometimes they're right sometimes they're wrong but even when they're starting to be an inkling that they were wrong they just dig deeper they just dig a scientific trench and start blasting anybody that comes near it so i've seen that within the ufo community a little bit generally people have been quite nice and receptive but within academia it's really funny because the researchers my colleagues who know me and who know my publication record and who know my research are very supportive. They're very excited about this. And we talk about it openly all the time. Those who aren't familiar with my research and who don't take the time to look at what I've done and what I'm doing here seem to just sort of be watching from the outside a little bit and I don't, I don't know. I feel like they're scheming or something. And this is probably just narcissism or assuming everybody's thinking about me and this all the time, but that's not the case. I've actually reached out to pretty prominent anthropologists and have just received no response whatsoever, which is actively <laughs> an act of ignoring, uh, regardless of my level of narcissism at any given time. So I think, um, many of them are starting to kind of look at it a little bit more and I would love to engage more anthropologists on this. The conversation is always different. I mean, tonight, a lot of it centered on the anthropology of this, which I love because that's what I do for a living. And most of the book is very, very much rooted in this field. Um, not just biological anthropology either, but there's a lot of 
linguistic and cultural anthropology parts of it too. And I think, I think that slowly, if they open the book and open their minds a little bit, we'll we'll start to break down some barriers. I'm I'm hopeful of that at least. So, what's the research look like after the book? Where are you going with this now? I'm going to bed after this. I'm going to take a long nap because this has been a lot of work. So, so do you you anticipate uh, keeping the ball rolling on this? Yeah, yeah. I'm just really tired right now, so I'm. I guess extrapolating that into the future, but but no, it was seven years that we've been working on this, and I say we because there are a lot of really important people that have helped me out a lot over that seven-year period. Um, honestly, just from what I've learned since publishing the book, uh, oh, exactly one month ago, it was March twenty-second. Yeah, um, since since a month ago when I published it and really started to get more media attention nationally, internationally, and, and hearing from all of these different academics and intelligence agents and engineers and physicists who have been writing me to tell me things that have been very encouraging, which has been great, um, but also filling in some gaps, little, little pieces of the puzzle that I didn't quite have. And I've always referred to this as an evolving project. Nothing's ever done. And, and just in the last month, I've received so much information from reliable sources that have filled in so many of those gaps that I think reluctantly, I would say it would help to move this forward and to give people an even deeper understanding of this phenomenon. If I were to write those into a, a follow-up book at some point in the future. And if that continues to happen, good Lord, it's only been one month. If that continues to happen and people that know things that I don't in different capacities continue to help me build my own understanding of this in a broader sense, then there could absolutely be a good reason to publish those. I think uh, any approach like this and seeing what you've done is absolutely amazing. And, and, how pragmatic it is and how different the approach that you have taken. So why is it taken so long for somebody to write this book? Well, it's been, it's been interesting to hear from people who have had the same idea, many of whom were children, actually, as it turns out, many kids around the same age as myself had the same sort of experience where there's just this flash of understanding. Um, and, and I've talked to, other researchers who have tried to write this too. Um, it, it was really a lifelong pursuit for me. I, I went to school for this. I went, I, I did the studies I did. I did the research projects I did. I did my dissertation uh, centered around really trying to understand this in the deepest way possible. So I think unless someone's willing to commit a, a lot of time and a lot of effort to researching the many nuances of this question, then it's it's not likely to to come together in the same way. It it takes a very broad approach that brings together things that are well established, things that aren't as well established, and things that are extremely taboo, but still have some validity and should be considered. Um, I think the stigma, again, as I mentioned, has been a big part of it. I, I'm a tenured full professor. I have 
protections and those are why that's why those protections are in place or for things exactly like this this is what we're supposed to be doing in science is pushing these boundaries and the whole reason tenure exists is to add a layer of protection for people to ask questions that are somewhat taboo and go against the grain so i think there needs to be more of that in the future and more collaboration as you mentioned earlier too a multidisciplinary approach that really brings experts together from their respective fields to work holistically on this question. Any current researchers in physics or the alien phenomenon that inspire you and that you like to read? I've always been a big fan of Paul Davies and Igor Novikov and Kip Thorne. Those are all three physicists. Uh, Paul Davies, Kip Thorne are American. Uh, Kip Thorne just won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work right. in detecting gravitational waves. Igor Novikov's a Russian physicist who I talk about extensively in the book. He he was one of those that, that went against the grain a little bit, too. He um, really tackled this these consistency paradoxes and the grandfather paradox and worked with uh, Kip Thorne on one of these papers, but another a number of other prominent researchers as well. But they through the literature over time sort of started to come around to what he was saying and and a, a paper that I discussed quite a lot in the book even came out I think it's called Cauchy Problems in Space Time even came out and said we sort of agree with him now and it's it's known as the Novikov self-consistency principle because he was so instrumental in bringing that to the table um, I I'm a big fan of a lot of a lot of researchers in a lot of fields, but those three have been pretty influential in my own understanding of, of physics and especially time and really trying to understand time. Einstein, you obviously have to mention him too in that context. So do you think they're studying us over a period of decades or a century, or do they look at us from different periods in our development over thousands or millions of years? Because technologically, we've changed so much over the last 100 years, and right now we are changing more and more every day. We are, certainly, and they have been for a while. I think if you're doing a scientific study of the past, you need representation. You need a representative sample from many different periods, and I was, I was doing an interview not too long ago where someone had mentioned uh, another researcher, I wrote their name on a post-it, so I'll probably never see it again. But they uh, recognized a pattern to the cattle mutilations that they seemed to come every five years in these these little waves, and that kind of makes sense in the context of sampling across time. That's what we try to do in archaeology too. Is you don't just shoot for one layer; you try to understand as much as you can from each of those to put together a, a good series of these temporal horizons that give you an idea of cultural change. And, and that might help explain some of these historic accounts um, in prehistory. If we're able to go back into the deep past, it may help explain things like the owl man at Nazca and all of the very alien looking creatures and cave paintings and some of these things that have sort of been bastardized in the context of ancient astronauts, but still 
maybe things that we should take into account. We, we didn't come back in time and built the pyramids. Those, those things are a little outside of, um, so we, we don't need them. We don't need those explanations. We can see the progressions up through our technology and our social organization where those things can happen on their own. But in studying the past, we're bound to be enumerated in some capacity. We're bound to leave some indication of our presence in the past, regardless of how hard we try not to. So, yeah, I don't think that this is something that's isolated to our time, the, our own present. I think it's something that's probably existed for as long as they've been able to do it for as far back in time as they can possibly go. Where can people find your book and where can they find you on the internet? I have a Twitter page. I have a Facebook page. Um, the website has links to all of those. That's probably the best resource. The web address is just a shortened version of the title of the book. I'd fly I D F L Y O B J. There's more information about the book. I'm starting to put together speaking engagements throughout the Northwest and Southwest. Um, there's links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo books, audible iTunes. There's also an audio book available and all of those can be found through the website. I got to tell you, it's an amazing book. I'm headed to the Philippines next week and that's what I'm doing on the plane. And oh, nice. honestly, I think, you know, I don't ever say this because I don't believe it, but I, I think this is a book that everybody should read, not only because <laughs> of its content, um, and it's subject matter, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a lesson in, in the scientific method and anthropology and how important anthropology is. Um, it's one of those things that, uh, I don't think people think about it. They hear about it and, and they don't really know what anthropologists are doing, how important it is, mm-hmm. the work that they're doing. I mean, it's amazing. And it's, it's such a broad spectrum of, of, of a discipline, you know, it has to You're, be, it yeah, has to be, we're very it, complex organisms. Exactly. So and we have to look at it, you know, ways. from, from language, linguistics, you know, to physiology, osteology. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and this is really, really worth taking a look and you can get a really inside view on, on what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. The book is Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. And thank you, Dr. Michael P. Masters, for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records.